Uh, Let us pray as we open God's word this morning. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, that we celebrate in this season. We focus a lot on the death, the burial, and the resurrection for good reason, for these are the center points of our faith, God. They're the hinge on which uh, human history shifted. But we also acknowledge today the life that Jesus led, the miracles that he did, the teaching that he gave the disciples that he walked with uh, so patiently. God, we ask for that same patience with us today, uh, that as we proclaim this word of Hosanna again today, that we would truly mean, as Jose said earlier, God, that we need salvation, and it comes from you alone. So this morning, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Open with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 11. I want to read the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on that final week of his life, at least the final week before he receives the resurrected body and is resurrected. Mark 11, beginning in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. We'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside the street tied at a doorway as they untied it. Some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. I'm curious this morning, this cry of Hosanna, when was the last time that you found yourself crying Hosanna to God? Maybe it's important for us to understand what that phrase means. It's not one that we use often, but Hosanna is simply a Hebrew term that means help. It's a cry of help. It's to cry, save me. And some of you may remember moments in your life you've been there, but can you remember the last time that you were desperate enough to cry, save me, help, whether it's to God or to someone else in a situation of great need. Hosanna is a cry of desperation made when we are at our lowest moment. In our culture, most of us grow up with the hope that in our lives, we would never have to cry a phrase like that. We would never get to a place that we would need the help of others. We live in a a time of self-dependence, a time of independence, a time of wanting to live without the need for others. This cry of Hosanna is a cry very different from that. This cry admits weakness The cry Hosanna is the cry of someone who who needs help, who admits that I'm not enough on my own, that I'm weak. Generally, we're not the kind of people who want to admit that sort of thing. This is the cry that Jesus finds on his ears as he enters Jerusalem. Not a cry of power, not a cry of independence, not a cry of self-sufficiency. In fact, being a Christian is really none of those things, is it? 
It's not about saying that we're enough on our own or that we've perfected our righteousness enough that we're accepted by God. No, it's a cry of Hosanna from the very beginning. A Christian is someone who constantly learns the proper place to give our cries of Hosanna. God, would you save us? But maybe for this story, it's important to understand some context, to understand exactly what's going on. There's a lot going on here that may not meet the eye the first time you read a story like this. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing in this story. Uh, He knows that he's walking into Jerusalem. He knows what's ahead of him. None of this story is accidental. In fact, this scene right here in Mark 11 is quite a provocative scene. It's a subversive moment in Jesus' ministry. He's actually poking the bear in this story in ways we may not have seen before. Let me give you a little background to help you understand some of this. In the first century, when an important Roman figure would come into a city, there was something that was referred to as a parousia. A parousia was this event that people would go outside the city and they would welcome in this person who'd won on the battlefield a victory, perhaps, or, or, or otherwise. It just means arrival or coming. That's what a parousia is. I'm going to use that term throughout the sermon today. And there's a lot of background behind that. The, the military victory would happen. A king or a governor would arrive in a city and there would be a common tradition. The people would welcome that, that foreign uh, you know, victory back to, to the city. Or maybe an important official would come into the city for an important event. They would receive this coming, this arrival, this greeting. Because it would be a shame for the army to return from military conquest without a greeting from the townspeople. So the townspeople would go out and they would meet the army. They would welcome them back. The spoils of war, the prisoners of war would be paraded out front of the scene. Oh, all the people in this scene knew what a parousia was. And then the crowd would sing their songs of acclamation, songs of victory. In fact, back in scripture, far before this, in the Old Testament, there's a story about this very thing happening. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 18. We see the story of David. He's returning from victory on the battlefield, and he receives what they'd refer to as a parousia. 1 Samuel 18, verses 5 through 7. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. David has tens of thousands. So you see the scene here, right? They're coming back from victory. The announcement has been made. They're singing their songs. They're welcoming him back into the city. Well, in this time of the first century, a bit later, what they would do after that, all the songs were sung, they welcomed them back as they would go to the pagan temples and they would offer sacrifice. They would offer thanks to the gods who had given them victory from afar. This would often happen, like I said, after a victory on the battlefield, but it would also occur when an important official would enter into the city at an event like perhaps the Passover. And this word parousia, which describes this event, shows up a little bit later in Paul's writings, one that we, you may be familiar with on another context. This is in 1 Thessalonians. We read the story that's about what will happen one day, a story about a coming again. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Just hear this passage in light of that background. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left, we caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with, one, with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Many people have taken these, this description about what will happen one day as uh, an allusion to the rapture. Even though it's interesting, the, the word rapture doesn't show up anywhere in Scripture. It's an idea that's really less than 200 years old. It's a relatively recent idea. I don't think this chapter at all is describing the rapture. It's using the idea of the Roman parousia about a victory one day to paint a picture of what will happen when Jesus returns. We'll greet him when he comes, is the, is the picture that's given. This verse says that those who are alive will be caught up in the clouds of the dead to greet the Lord in the air. Paul's using this image of a parousia that everyone would have been familiar with to describe the second coming of Jesus. He's saying, just like when Caesar shows up in town and you greet him outside the gate, when Christ returns, you're going to greet God in the clouds. You're going to welcome him home. The only thing I can think of to compare this picture in the first century is like a, a championship parade after a sports team wins on behalf of a city, right? Ticker tape parade, you know, this welcoming with all these people that are gathered in some central location, welcoming the team back into the city. And if you listen to the triumphal entry story with that context in mind, you begin to hear some different echoes. Anyone who understands this context about first century Rome understands what's going on here. Everyone would have gotten the clues of what Jesus is doing. Story is trying to draw a clear parallel, contrasting in many ways the arrival of Pilate and Herod and Caesar as they would enter into a city and the arrival of Jesus as he enters in. But this is a very different parousia. It doesn't look like the one that you would imagine when the military conqueror comes home. Instead of charging in on war horses with the spoils of war. No, Jesus rides in on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not exactly the most prestigious animal. It's a beast of burden. But if you know your Old Testament, the book of Zechariah, you know this isn't a small detail. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this prophecy about who would come. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, instead of a parousia that announces celebrating war and victory, Jesus' parousia celebrates a different kind of thing. It's the peace of God that comes, that breaks the bow. And later on, a few chapters in Zechariah, we see another of these prophecies that seems to be enacted here in this entrance into Jerusalem. Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 4. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. And then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half 
moving south. And if you paid attention to those first verses in Mark chapter 11, you notice where Jesus' feet are standing. It's on the Mount of Olives. All of this imagery is going back to these prophetic elements. And instead of coming into the city with victorious armies, Jesus' company is a bit more humble. It's a ragtag group of homeless, itinerant followers of this rabbi wandering into the city with their cloaks and their branches to proclaim a different kind of kingdom. You see, everything Jesus does in this unusual parousia points to the difference between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of Caesar. Rome's power was built on, on, on coercion and fear. It was built on violence. But Jesus' kingdom is built on different things altogether. Like the parousias of Rome, the people begin to shout their songs of deliverance. They shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This scene continues to fulfill prophecy after prophecy. Another one of those comes from the book of Psalms. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Listen again in light of this triumphal entry. I am laid, let's see, this is Psalm 19. We go back to 18. Lord, save us. Again, that word, Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the house of the Lord, we bless you. Crowds are picking up on this language right from the Psalms. They're proclaiming Jesus as their deliverer and their savior. These words mean something. The the parousia means something. But to understand the irony of of Jesus' entry into the city, there's one more important detail we should keep in mind. Because the one who was over Judea to keep the peace during this Passover season was one named Pilate. Later on in the week, Pilate will come back to the story, right? He'll have Jesus on trial. Eventually, he'll release Barabbas instead of Jesus. He'll have Jesus flogged before he releases him to be crucified. Pilate would have come into the city uh, that same weekend because uh, Pilate lived uh, 50 miles away from Jerusalem. He he lived in a, a city called Caesarea. So during this week, when it was so important for him to keep the peace for the sake of Rome, he would have entered into the city. And I I can assure you, on the other side of town from Jesus' entry, there would have been another entry. Been Pilate on a different kind of animal. Pilate received by those who go out, greeting him with songs of deliverance, perhaps going to the pagan temples of the day to sing their songs and appreciate their leader. And yet on the other side of town, there's this small gathering of people, probably smaller than Pilate's welcoming in this guy on a donkey. Very different pictures. Not near as impressive as Pilate's parousia. Pilate's parousia would have made the evening news to be sure, Jesus, I'm not so sure. And with that background, you can see how subversive this story is. This is with intention what Jesus does. Go get that colt because you know what Zechariah said and come sing your songs of Hosanna because I'm the one who can save. Mark 11 is like a Saturday Night Live parody skit, right? It's mocking the leader of the day to say, you think you're king? No, no, no. Let me show you some street theater and show you who the real king truly is. That's what Jesus is doing. He's performing street theater. He's mocking Pilate. He's standing up to the only empire on the planet, and he's performing satire to point out the ridiculous nature of a kingdom that looks far different than the one that God promises to bring. I want to come back to that word Hosanna for a moment. I think we could stand to introduce this word back into our vocabulary more often. Again, Hosanna is a Hebrew word that means save us now. 
It's a cry of desperation for a deliverer who can actually do something. And, and as I look at the Gospels uh, and I think about my life, I, I think I'm a whole lot more like the rich young ruler than I am this picture of people crying, Hosanna. Because the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You, you get the sense of that question, right? What must I do? The focus is on my ability to save myself. And as the scene works out, it becomes impossible for the rich young ruler to lay down what Jesus asks of him. My, my question is about what I can do. God, what, what must I do to be saved? This seems to be the question over and over again in the scriptures, right? But the cry of Hosanna is a very different cry, isn't it? It doesn't stand on what I can do. It doesn't ask Jesus, hey, what are, let me make sure I get it all in a row so that I can make sure I'm safe before God. The cry of Hosanna is a cry that says, God, I can't do it. More like the tax collector than it is the Pharisee in that story that's told, right? The one who beats his breast and he says, God, have mercy on me, a, a sinner. That's what the cry of Hosanna looks like. In the past century, it's been all too common, I think, for us to ask that question probably a lot longer than that. What must I do? What can I do in order to receive eternal life? With our altar calls and our sinner's prayers and with our plans of salvation, we've been all too focused on what we can do to ensure our salvation. Now, I'll assure you the human side is important. This isn't something God does on his own. We have to receive the gift. But our movement has been so focused on our, our, our part in the process, we've forgotten to cry Hosanna along the way as well. Uh, early on in the movement, there were a, a five-finger exercise. Maybe you've heard about this, right? That you hear, you believe, you confess, you repent, and, and you're baptized. And these are all parts of the salvation process. We read about them in the Gospels, but, but that confession and that repentance is really important because what it says, if we understand it as it should be, is, God, I confess that I am a sinner. I confess there's nothing I can do to check off enough boxes that it's only by repentance to your way and receiving your salvation that anything can be done. It is a gift of God, not something we can muster on our own. It's part our work, but it's first God's work, isn't it? That's what salvation is. That's what the cry of Hosanna is. It's a realization of the reality of things that we can't do enough on our own. We, we can't perfect ourselves. No amount of striving and doing and checking off boxes that can ever save us. No, the cry is, Jesus, you're going to have to do this work. And during these eight days from Palm Sunday to what we'll celebrate next week on Easter Sunday, it is a realization of how God will bring this salvation. All the crowds can say is, Hosanna, save us because we can't do this on our own. Because the bent of humanity has always been on reliance of self. We try to replace God as Savior all the time every day, don't we? From the first sin of Adam and Eve, we've been trying to be self-sufficient and independent. At the Tower of Babel, we built a tower up to the heavens to make a name for ourselves. In 1 Samuel 8, we want a king so that we can be like all the other nations and do this ourselves. And then we prostituted ourselves with foreign gods before we were sent into exile. But finally, in Mark chapter 11, Israel understands it's not going to happen because we can get this right. We've tried and we've tried and we've failed and we've failed. The only hope is going to be Jesus who comes and does this on our behalf. Finally, after all their striving, they lay all that down and they say, Hosanna, save us, God. 
Notice what happens after the triumphal entry. Jesus turns over the tables in the temple, and you, you remember who it is that cries out Hosanna again? He heals the blind, the lame, and then the children. It's the children who cry out Hosanna once again. Sounds familiar? Isn't that kind of the choice for us, right? We can act as children and enter into the kingdom of God, or we can, can try to do it as adults and try to do it on our own. In Matthew chapter 18, that's exactly what we see. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 18, 1 to 4. I just want to point us again to Jesus' words about where this hope comes from and how we're to interact in this kingdom. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Have we done enough? Which one of us has done enough to be the greatest, right? Jesus turns their focus again. He called a little child to him, placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We have to become like children once again. What is it that's unique about children and infants? It's that they know how to cry and whine and gripe, right? They know when they have a need that all they can do is not provide for themselves. It's going to take a a cry of help to someone who can provide for them. Somewhere along the way, we lose that ability to cry, don't we? We lose that sense that we're not enough on our own. We lose that sense of crying, Hosanna. That's that cry the babies are crying every time they're here in our service. Maybe you've forgotten it. It's Hosanna that they're crying. Save us, help us, do what we can't do on our own. And I wonder what it would be like for us to choose to do the same again. To receive the kingdom like little children, to realize this can't happen through my own effort. I've, I've, any of you who've tried, you, it's always a frustration, isn't it? Because we can never quite get there. We have all the right motives and like Paul and Romans 7, we say, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do the very things I want to do. Until we're finally able to give that up and say, God, it's going to have to be you because I can't do it on our own. So this morning on this Palm Sunday, there are some of us today who may need to finally give up this whole adult charade, that we can pull this off on our own, that we're enough on our own. This project of salvation is something we can accomplish. No, maybe, maybe for the first time today, this is your chance to go back to being like a child. Maybe to look like cries and tears. Maybe to look like saying Hosanna once again. I hope this word Hosanna will be on your lips this week. But there are others of us that have already given up the fact that we can get this pulled together. The challenge for us may not be that we need to act like a child or we need to cry out Hosanna, it may just mean that we need to redirect our Hosannas to the proper place. Because those people in Jerusalem that week, the crowds, they had a choice on Palm Sunday where they would go. Would they go to the larger event where Pilate was entering into the town, hoping that maybe Rome would be the answer? I know the Sadducees and the Herodians had kind of given up on God doing this. Maybe we just need to partner with the Romans because maybe they can get this thing accomplished, right? There's others that go along with this Jesus and they cry their hosannas there. So maybe some of us need to remember that, that our, our allegiance can't be given to two places. Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money. And I think the picture that's painted here as Jesus does the street theater is you, your attention and your allegiance and your salvation cannot come from both Caesar 
And Jesus, you're going to have to choose. Where is your hope going to lie? Where is salvation going to come from? And so as we enter into this cry of Hosanna, it's important not just to cry Hosanna, to throw up our hands and say, well, I can't do this on my own. It's important that we direct that Hosanna to the right source. And that source is Jesus Christ. It's what we celebrate this week. It's what we'll walk with Jesus through this week as we look toward the cross and eventually to the hope of our faith. So this morning, maybe this is a morning that some of you want to make that decision again. Maybe it's to take that step again back to being children. Or maybe it's that, 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 that step to say, I've put my hope in other places and my security's found elsewhere. And I'm going to put my hope and my security back in Jesus. I'm going to cry my Hosanna there. But maybe for the first time, you need to make that decision this morning through baptism. Isn't that what baptism is? Baptism is not the checking off of another box to finally make ourselves worthy enough, right? It's a submitting ourselves to Jesus, who is the only one who can do that saving. It's, it's to step into the waters of baptism, to, to die to ourselves and be raised up back to new life. That's what the Hosanna is. It's to say, God, I, I've got to die to myself, and I've got to be raised to new life through your spirit. There's this picture that's given over and over again in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, right? 3,000 people said Hosanna that day. 3,000 people gave up their lives and they were baptized in the waters. They were brought forth to new life. And maybe this morning, for the first time, you need to make that decision. to Finally give over all of that to God and say, God, only you can be the one to say, we'd love nothing more today uh, than to get to baptize uh, one or two or more of you into the waters of baptism. And so this morning, after our service, feel free to talk with me to talk with our prayer partners in the back, or if you want to begin that journey and and study more about that, we'd love to take you through that process because we believe that Hosanna was not just a cry that was needed in the first century. Hosanna is the cry that we learn and we rehearse because we realize we can't do this on our own. Amen. Let's, uh, Let's pray as we close our time this morning. Oh God, you are our God and earnestly we seek you. Just like those who welcome Jesus into the city, we long for the day where we'll get to greet you in the clouds and we'll get to sing our hosannas again to be reminded of the goodness of what you promised to bring. Father, this morning, uh, I think there's a realization for many of us that we have tried to do this on our own all too often. We've tried to be independent and self-reliant. And God, it's just, it's, it's a wearisome journey when we try to do that. We always seem to mess it up and never get it right. God, it seems so strange to look to our children as the people who lead the way, but isn't that the way it is in our world that looks other places? It's our children, God, that are leading us, that are pointing us to our need, that are crying out for salvation. So God, my prayer this morning is that when we hear those cries, whether we're in the nursery serving this morning or we uh, have children of our own or it's our grand, whatever those cries may be that we hear in our world, God, when we turn In that moment, God, to make the same cry to you. We can't do this on our own. We are not enough on our own. There's nothing we can do that will make you love us more than you love us right now or any less than you love us right now. But God, we want to walk in tune with your grace and with your mercy and with your salvation. So God, our cry today is Hosanna. God, would you save us now? We direct that to you because no other place that we can place our security can do it like you can so God, we, uh, we leave today a little bit younger with eyes, a little bit more like children. 
seeking to be your people in a world that needs your good news this week. And God, as we encounter people this week who need that same message of saving, point us to ways to connect with them and to share this story of good news. It is good news, God. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.